Well, hello and welcome back to another edition of the Six P's podcast. It is fantastic to have your company once again. After a little bit of a hiatus, we've had a few weeks off, but we're in a really good position at the moment. We finished off Unit 3, and by the time this podcast goes to air, we'll be on our mid-year holidays and getting prepared for Unit 4. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be focusing on the comparative unit. Uh, In our case, we're going to be focusing primarily on the crucible and the dressmaker pairing. Of course, there are many others, but that's one we're going to be focusing on and uh, hoping to drop about four or five podcasts at the start of July in pretty quick succession um, just to uh, focus really, I guess, primarily on some of the background information today. And after that, we're going to have a look at the dressmaker and run through a bit of a summary of the novel. Now, if you would like to get in contact with me, you can do so via email at 6pspodcast at gmail.com. That's 6pspodcast at gmail.com. Of course, we also have the YouTube channel up and running. In fact, we've already released some comparative content. So just search for 6P's podcast on YouTube and make sure you like and subscribe. I'm happy to get plenty of feedback there as well. Now, music theme for today, uh, we've actually got a request from a long-time listener. In fact, he's been with us from the start, uh, Ryan, or Riser, as he's affectionately known as around these parts. Um, he did Year 12 a couple of years ago, uh, and during that time, uh, GTA 5 was one of his um, releases. So he's asked very kindly if he can have a GTA 5 theme or music theme on the podcast today. We will grant that. We're going to start with a little bit of Dr. Dre. We'll be right back looking at some background information on The Crucible and The Dressmaker on the Six Piece Podcast right after this. Still Snoop Dogg and D.I.A. Guess who's back? Still. Still doing that shit, Andre? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Check me out. It's still Trey Day. Uh? A.K. Uh? Though I've grown a lot, can't keep it home a lot. Cause when I frequent the spots that I'm known to rock, you hear the bass from the truck when I'm on the block. Ladies, they pay homage, but haters say Trey fell off. How? My last album was The Chronic. They want to know if he still got it. They say rap's changed. They want to know how I feel about it. you ain't up on pain. Dr. Dre is the name. I'm ahead of my gang. Still puffing my leaf. Still with the beats. Still not loving police. Still rock my khakis with a cuff and a crease. Still got love for the streets. Repping 213. Still the beats bang. Still doing my thing. Since I left, ain't too much change. Still, I'm representing for the gangsters all across the world. Still, hitting them corners and them lolos, girl. Still, taking my time to perfect the beat. And I still got love for the streets. It's the DRE. I'm representing for the gangsters all across the world. Still, hitting them corners and them lolos, girl. Still, taking my time to perfect the beat. And I still got love for the streets. It's the DRE. Since the last time you heard from me, I lost some friends. Well, hell. Me and Snoop, we dipping again. Kept my ear to the streets. Signed Eminem. He's triple platinum doing 50 a week still. I stay close to the Welcome back to the Six Piece podcast. Bit of a 90s throwback there with a little bit of Dr. Trey. Uh, we're going to get started uh, by looking at our two texts, which are Arthur Miller's play The Crucible and Rosalie Ham's novel The Dressmaker. So the first thing when we look at both these texts is that they are different types of texts. So one's a play and one's a novel. The play is an American text that was 
um, first published in the 1950s and is set in 1692, whereas The Dressmaker is a novel that was written at the turn of the millennium or the turn of the century uh, and is set in 1950s Australia. So we've got definitely two different settings and also two different text types. And it's really important that you think about that. I'm going to start with a little bit of the background information about The Crucible. The first thing for me to think about with The Crucible is there are three types of text in this play. There's the dialogue from the characters. There's also stage directions, which provide information about the setting, as well as the characters, um, not just their background information, um, but also their um, uh, emotional state as well. And we've also got commentary that appears throughout, particularly the first act. Um, You can call it commentary, you can call it authorial interjections or authorial intrusions, it's up to you. But it's pretty much just Arthur Miller chiming in with um, information for the reader um, that relates to not just what was happening in 1692, but also some references to life in 1950s America. And we're going to touch on those comparisons a little bit later on. With The Crucible, probably the most complex um, part about the background information is we are dealing with two contexts. We're dealing with 1692 Salem and 1950s America. I thought today I might focus firstly on the Salem Witch Trials in 1692 because that's where the play is set. So Salem, or Salem Village as it was known as, was a Puritan town. So Puritans are a sect of individuals that fled England for fear of being religious or religious persecution. They found religious freedom in America and set up their own small little village. With these Puritan beliefs, they were really strict. In fact, there's a really good quotation. Uh, There's a couple of really good quotations, actually, in the first couple of pages of the play, which talk about uh, life in Salem Village being a strict and somber way of life and one that was devoid of any vain enjoyment. So um, it was a society that was built on two things primarily, um, hard work uh, and prayer. So you worked six days of the week, and then one day of the week you worked, or you prayed, or you went to church. So with this society, it is what we would call a theocratic society where the state protected the church through the laws and also the beliefs. And everyone bought into this belief as well. So there was no divide between church and the government. They were as one. So the religious beliefs or the religious laws were the laws. So back in 1692, um, in Salem, there was hysteria and an outcry against certain villages Um, based on a fear of the devil and a fear of witchcraft. So the Salem Witch Trials, which is what this play is about, is actually a real event that happened. In fact, many people died um, due to this. And in fact, many of the characters in the play are real people. Um, Arthur Miller has taken some liberties and provided them with some personalities, and he actually opens the play with a note on the historical aspect of the play and some of the liberties which he took. And one of them is Abigail Williams, one of the main characters, who in real life was 11, but in the play he's made her 17 and sort of added in an adulterous affair with the protagonist John Proctor as a way to build on the drama. Now what's interesting is that the belief in witchcraft and the belief in the devil was real. Um, They fully believed in it and they felt that if something bad happened, they would blame or look to the devil. They also believed... Um, and this was, again, a patriarchal society, one where men had all the power, that women were more easily manipulated by the devil. 
So again, women and to that extent as well, children weren't really respected. And it's quite ironic because it is the women or the young girls that end up holding and manipulating um, the rest of the town. So that's one aspect of the context. It's play based on the Salem witch trials, which are a real event that happened. So why does Miller choose this? Well, it all comes back to 1950s America, which I know we've touched on before with Rear Window. But it is this fear of communism and the rise of McCarthyism where individuals who were viewed as communists or communist sympathizers were questioned by the government. Um, They were called um, and, um, well, they were called to actually testify at HUAC at the House of Un-American Activities Committee and they were forced to name people who they were dealing with. Um, Many of them were actually blacklisted. In fact, if you were found to be a communist or a communist sympathizer, you quite often, more often than not, either received a jail term and or, definitely more so, lost a job and would find it difficult to have employment. There was this real fear of communism in America at the time that was fueled as part of the Cold War, which was this ideological war against the USSR or Russia as we would know it today. And where we see the connection and maybe one of the reasons why Miller might have written about the Salem Witch Trials is that the fear of witchcraft and the fear of communism um, really led to abusive authorities and abusive governments. And in fact, both these fears are fears of things that aren't real. Both witchcraft and communism aren't tangible things. So that's a connection there. And it's been suggested many times that this is an allegory or an analogy, that the Salem Witch Trials are an analogy to what was happening in America in the 1950s. So a lot of information to take in there about the crucible, but I definitely encourage you to do your own research and to build your knowledge of not just 1692 um, Salem, but also 1950s America. And if you can include that in your essays, in your comparative essays, you go a long way to really impressing your markers and impressing the examiners as well. Let's shift our attention now to the dressmaker, which is a little bit more simplistic in terms of the context. Now, once again, we're dealing with the 1950s, but this time the 1950s is the setting. And Australia, um, primarily too. Now, we also looked at the Golden Age, which was set in 1950s Australia. So again, we're really fortunate here. We've got a context that we already know a little bit about. So we know that after World War II, there was an influx of migration from Europe Um, predominantly from countries like England um, and Italy and Greece, um, which led to an economic upturn. But Australia was definitely still very much isolated from the rest of the world. Um, Commercial aviation was just sort of taking off. And um, as a result, Australia was still very much an insular society. The white Australia policy was definitely still in effect um, and was up until the 1960s. So We're dealing with um, a community um, which was predominantly made up of um, Anglo citizens. So this text is set in a fictional town of Dungata, which is on the on uh, in the Wheat Belt, which we're going to suggest is either in Victoria or southern New South Wales, where grain is um, the main thing that's farmed. So back in the 1950s, small country towns had their own social codes or norms and conventions and one of the things that we see in this text particularly is this idea of football being a really important part of the town 
Now, class was a bit more pronounced in these societies, and you had upper and lower classes, and these are depicted in the text. So we've got the upper class, which we would see through the Beaumont family, and also um, Evan Pennyman, the councillor. And then we've got the lower class, where you've got um, aspects or families like um, the McSwineys. It's also interesting to note where we have a bit of a link is that just like Salem, um, Dungatar is very much a conservative and traditional society. These are the values that are upheld. And we see that by way of the way that um, Molly and Tilly are treated. Being Tilly, of course, being, and I quote from the text, a bastard girl or an illegitimate child. And this was really frowned upon. The other thing I'd like to mention about the context is the fashion because this is what Tilly provides to the town. So Tilly spent many, many years in Europe traveling the world and traveling Europe and honing her fashion skills and um, particularly by way of haute couture which is sort of custom-made clothing. Fashion is seen as something that's quite transformational transformational I should say um, and something that the townspeople use to build their self-esteem and to, to build their class and we see that particularly with Gertrude or Trudy whose dress is able to catch capture the attention of William Beaumont and in them getting married and then she's able to sort of um, rise through the classes so fashion is definitely something I would look at as well for this but we are dealing with um, two settings are in very much different time periods, but we do see some connections between the two towns of Salem and Dungatar. And um, both as well, I should say, are geographically isolated. So they're a long way away from other towns and other societies, and therefore that leads to regressive um, views and perspectives and definitely a rigid outlook on life. We're going to go to another song from GTA for Riser. When we come back after this, we're just going to touch base on a couple of the key themes to look out for when it comes to reading both these texts. We'll be right back on the Six Piece Podcast after this.
So to finish off uh, today, I thought I might discuss things that I would be looking at for when it comes to comparing these two texts. And of course, the first thing we're going to look at is those settings of Salem and Dungatar and the fact they are both obviously geographically isolated, but um, that they're quite uh, insular and conservative for different reasons, Salem being because of its Puritan values and Dungatar for being a rural community in Australia during the 1950s. With that, of course, both societies, especially authorities, are quite contradictory in the way that they act and the way that they treat other people. You should also be looking to compare characters. So to um, start quite simply, we can look at our two protagonists. So we've got John Proctor in The Crucible and Tilly Dunnage in The Dressmaker. Both characters search for a sense of atonement um, and blame themselves for actions that have happened in the past. Um, Both are judged for these events as well that occurred, Um, but the way that they both seek atonement is slightly different. So for John Proctor, obviously, it's tearing up the confession um, and, I guess, sacrificing himself for his reputation, while for Tilly, it's a little bit different. She's much more vengeful. Uh, Other characters you can look to compare, obviously those who are uh, vulnerable within these societies. So we're looking at women and outcasts. So characters like Tichuba and characters like Tilly and Molly, particularly you can focus on there. And I guess authoritative figures as well you can compare. Um, Both are quite corrupt in the way they act. So you're looking at characters like in The Crucible, Paris and Putnam and Judge Danforth and the dressmaker Evan Pettyman as well as um, Mr. Ormanac as well in the way that they abuse their power. In terms of the themes to focus on, something that I like to do when I read texts is to just write myself a bookmark that covers the main themes and as I'm reading through the texts I can refer to that and make my annotations based on those. So I thought I'd read through the themes that I've got that I think are going to be really useful to look at. So I'll read them out, and then I might touch on them a little bit later on. So let's go through them. Insular communities, conservative communities, blame and guilt, gender roles, social hierarchy, abuse of power, individual power, forgiveness, conflict and disunity, Love and trust, truth, appearance and deception, fear, and the last one is judgment. So write all those down on a bookmark, and as it comes to reading through these texts and then also analysing, you've got these key ideas or these key themes that you can refer back to. And um, as we run through them in a moment, a little bit of detail, I won't go into too much detail, but I'll run through them in a little bit of detail, you'll see a lot of uh, crossover. So firstly, insular and conservative communities, we've already talked about this, but they're both very much closed communities with very restrictive rules. Blame and guilt go hand in hand, so obviously characters get blamed, particularly those who are most vulnerable, and the idea of guilt and characters feeling guilty for their actions and um, trying to make up for these actions too. Gender roles, when we're particularly looking at women, so women who are quite suppressed in both these societies um, and depicted as being, you know, sort of gossiping and conniving, Um, based on the patriarchal nature of the society, but also how some of these women end up um, manipulating their towns and end up gaining control. Social hierarchy, we've got 
the class system, which is evident in both towns. So in Salem, the Crucible, um, you know, we've got landowners and those in authority, authoritative positions who are in the upper class. And then we've got the lower class, which includes children and the women and, and those poor members of the town, like your Sarah Goods. And in the dressmaker, you've definitely got that clear social hierarchy. The upper class, Evan Pediman, and the Beaumonts, uh, the middle class, like the Pratts, and then the lower class, the McSwanies, uh, clearly in that group. The abuse of power by authorities comes up in both texts, and then the idea of individual power, so individuals going against society um, and acting um, for themselves. Forgiveness is really important when it comes to our protagonists in seeking that. That's part of their motivation, is attaining forgiveness for what's happened in the past. Conflict, we've got two clear conflicts in the text. So in Salem, the conflict is the Salem Witch Trials. And in The Crucible, well, the conflict is the um, play, the Macbeth um, production that they put on, which leads to a lot of disunity um, and it all falls apart in the end. And obviously, conflict within Tilly, that, that inner conflict that she faces about what she must do. Love and trust is seen through the main relationships, so romantic relationships in both texts. So John Proctor and um, and Elizabeth Proctor in The Crucible. Almost forgot her name there for a moment. In The Dressmaker, the romantic uh, storyline is obviously between uh, Tilly and Teddy, but there's also that mother-daughter love that comes up as well with Tilly and Molly, and we see that initially in the, in the text that they are sort of a fair bit apart. Um, in fact, Molly doesn't even recognize Tilly, and that's done nicely through that third-person narrative perspective. Um, but obviously they build that love for each other. We've also got love um, between characters like um, Irma and Molly and even Molly and Marigold, even Marigold and Tilly, um, who've experienced you know, um, the consequences of, of abusive men. Truth, appearance and deception. Appearance particularly, we see the girls in the crucible and in the dressmaker, it's all about the clothes and the way that clothes manage to, um, I guess, bring out different... Um, facades or people's different um, motivations, particularly for Gertrude or Trudy, who is able to use a dress made by Tilly to gain William Beaumont's approval. Fear is the other theme we'll look at today along with judgment, but fear obviously comes up throughout as a motivator for many of the characters and judgment, the way we are judged and the um, ramifications of that. So that's a run through of sort of the key themes as I said, the other thing you can look at when comparing them, of course, is the fact that one is a play and one is a novel. So obviously with The Crucible, it is a play. We've got those um, authorial interjections. We've got the dialogue. We've got the stage directions. The dressmaker, we've got the different third-person perspectives. It's not just from Tilly's point of view. We get Teddy's point of view and Molly's point of view, amongst others, throughout. The last thing to talk about today is obviously... A question that gets asked a lot about text when we study them is whether you should watch the films. So in this case, we've got two texts that have both been made into films relatively recently. The Crucible was made in the 90s and The Dressmaker was made a couple of years ago. So my advice is, yes, watch the film because it gives you that visual um, for the setting and the characters, but don't watch it too closely. Don't be taking notes because they're not an entirely accurate reflection of the texts. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, with The Crucible, um, the girls dancing at the, is shown at the start of the film. It's actually not shown in the play, which I think is quite powerful. It's the power of the unseen. Um, also, in 
the play its four acts and four settings, whereas in the film there are many more settings. With the dressmaker, um, the certain um, elements of the plot um, aren't told in the same order. So a couple of the secrets are told much earlier in the text than they are in the film, and it's sort of I'm very mindful of that. So if I was to be studying these texts, yes, I would watch the film, but just simply watch it for um, the visual element of it. Thanks for joining me once again on the 6Ps podcast. It's been great to have your company once again after that little hiatus. If you would like to get in touch, you can do so at 6Pspodcast at gmail.com. That's 6Pspodcast at gmail.com. Happy to answer any questions or if you want anything covered in the podcast or on YouTube, please reach out there. And as I said, you can also check out the YouTube channel. Just search for 6Ps podcast on YouTube. But for now, I've been Jim Session. This has been the 6Ps podcast reminding you that proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. Are we finished? Done.